Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our historians get angry and lash out at popular misconception where some of our most polite and civil academics get to throw their rider and kick falsehoods out of the stable. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and the mighty stallion of Stoke-on-Trent, Kyle Glover. No one has ever referred to me as a mighty stallion before, so thank you for that, Paul. You are welcome. Well, today, dear ragers, we are talking horses again, as you may have gathered, a subject that is bound to teach both of us quite a bit as we're complete horse novices. So, galloping us down the home straight towards the most nail-biting of photo finishes today, we are joined by writer, researcher and co-editor of the International Journal of Equine and Equestrian History, Dr Miriam Bibby. Miriam, welcome to History Rage. Hello. It's great to be here so I can have a really good rant. Hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Good. Now, you've come to us by by your own request. You actually contacted us to get this particular bugbear off your chest. So thank you very much, first of all, for saving me some work. But before we start on horse history, can you give us an insight into your own history and how you ended up in this field, or should I say paddock? <laughs> in the field of equine history? Well, uh, I guess you could blame the milkman for that uh, and the milkman's horse for taking me up the road when I was about um, two years old. So ever after that, I was crazy about horses. And history, the history side of it, the archaeology side of it, comes from living in northeast England, being born in Newcastle. When you live there, you can't really fail but be fascinated by history. The history, it's all around. It's part of your your culture, really, whether it's mm. the Venerable Bede or the Roman Wall. So the two kind of meshed and for about, well, 10, 15 years now, I've been focusing on equine history as my main area of interest. And a horse called the Galloway Nag, or the Galloway Horse in particular, very little known horse, but very influential, and its role in the creation of the thoroughbred. 
Yes, and that's what we're that's what we're going to be talking about today. Then, so since you're uh, since you're itching for the starting pistol, let's uh, let's kick this rage off. So, Miriam, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our mob of history rages out there what you wish people would just stop believing? I wish people would just stop believing that three stallions created the thoroughbred breed. Three named stallions. Thinking about it, three stallions on their own cannot create a horse breed. And I wish people would stop focusing on them and think about the other horses involved. Wow. Okay. Is that angry enough? You must think of it. Okay. <laughs> this is niche. Okay. I, I thought Grant Harwood's episode was going to be the niche, peak point of niche for us, but no, I stand or sit corrected here. So, okay, so bear in mind, Kyle and I are complete horse beginners here. Mm. I, would, I couldn't even tell you what a thoroughbred is, let alone whether or not it was right. So, can you tell us a bit more about this narrative and the horses involved and like when the thoroughbred breed was founded? And if I might add as well, given that this is niche, why should any of us mind? The thoroughbred breed was founded in Britain, in England, in Yorkshire, even in the 18th century. But it was uh, drawing on uh, a variety of traditions and horses that were already racing before these three so-called famous founding fathers arrived. So the thoroughbred breed is probably the most famous type of racehorse in the world. It's the one that you see racing at events globally. There are other racehorses. There's the American Quarter Horse is the most famous horse and the fastest horse in the world over a quarter of a mile. But the thoroughbred is the one that everybody thinks of when they imagine a race course with horses going around it. The why people should be annoyed about this is because we've got a falsely constructed narrative that is based very closely on these three so-called oriental founding father stallions that were imports into Britain in a very limited period of time. And all historians really have an interest in this because it's hugely political, it's social, it's economic, it's really very, very important part of our history and very influential as well. Uh, socially, people meet on the racetrack, they do business on the racetrack, their horses are a sort of symbol of their status. It's horse history is history, just like any other aspect of history. Mm. Yes, yeah. I suppose if you if you put it like that, the you know there there was a time when the where when the racetrack and possibly still is, in fact, when the racetrack is the epicenter of business, you know, in the same way as the coffee house or the pub or the golf course today. Yes, exactly. And still goes on to a certain extent. And it is an international business with horses, very expensive horses being sold, bought and sold across, across the world. Yes. And it's the one area, this is a very interesting one and tied into the way the thoroughbred developed. Whereas there are all sorts of modern techniques for breeding horses, including cloning. A lot of polo ponies are cloned now. They, and also, really? of course, there's artificial insemination. Yep. The, Thoroughbred horse has to be produced, a thoroughbred foal has to be produced by what they call live cover. That means a stallion and a mare have to get together in public, a bit like the old kings and queens of Britain, and show that they've consummated themselves in public. And then the offspring is then a registered member 
of the thoroughbred tribe, so to speak. Yeah. Hmm. It's a closed gene pool as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you mentioned there that it was in Yorkshire in the 18th century rather than in the Orient sometime earlier. Is that, is that right? Yes. The narrative of the three founding fathers, it's these three particular stallions that somebody realised in the 19th century were turning up in the pedigrees of all successful horses. And they're the winners on various important, various important races. These three stallions are the Godolphin Arabian, or Barb, the Bayali Turk, and the uh, Dali Arabian. And I suppose I better explain the differences between Arabian mm-hmm. or Arab horse, Turk or Turkoman horse and Barb. They are mm. all, often called the Oriental breeds. And the Barb comes from North Africa. We've known about Barbs for a long time. The Turk, obviously a Turkoman horse, it now part of uh, Turkmen culture and very associated with Turkey and the Arab. Is, has often been believed to come from the Arabian Peninsula, but in fact it's a lot complicated than that. The Arab is a relative late comer when it comes to this, this triad of, of, of horses. During the period from William III to the middle of the 18th century, these horses were, became extremely popular as imports. The first one, the Bayerly Turk, one person argues, wasn't even an import. He was actually bred in Yorkshire, one scholar has argued. But you can see that the cachet of having a Barb, a Turk, or an Arab horse was very, very important in this period of time. This was the period when most of them were, were introduced. And this, to a certain extent, is how they've become so important. So you mentioned that the real origin of the thoroughbred horse might not be those three, but might be in northern England, in Yorkshire, or in even further north than that? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Mm. What interests me is really what preceded the, the what we know as a thoroughbred. The thoroughbreds mm. are a very particular product of a very particular time, a time of empire, a time uh, when there's a lot of uh, money starting to be made in all, all sorts of things, including um, industry and commerce in Britain. So this is very much a product of its time. But for me, the thoroughbred story, obviously racing's been going on for millennia basically you can go mm, back to, yeah. the, to the romans and the the greeks it was chariot racing horse racing but for me the story starts in scotland and it starts in the 15th century at the court of james the fourth scotland's often called scotland's renaissance king this was an incredibly horsey place and scotland was a very horsey country there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of horses in the landscape and the court loved betting on racing there's so much so that um david Lindsay wrote satires about how much money they were spending on horse on horses and horse racing the king himself did a, an epic horse ride that took in perth and sterling and elgin and other places all in a single day scottish horses were famous they were fast they were comfortable to ride and the best known horses in scotland were the galloways the galloway nags and even the english rated the Galloway legs very highly because they were so comfortable and fast. So this, for me, is the origin of horse racing in the island of Britain. The thoroughbred is a relatively latecomer in all of this. And it's really important on the Anglo-Scottish border because you've got not only are people raiding, but they're also racing. There's large amounts of money changing hands 
um, when it comes mm. to this, and horses being stolen and passed from one place to the other. Yorkshire counts because it's a place where both the imports and the existing horses, which were probably of Galloway and another type of horse called the Hobby, which is an Irish breed, were bred and crossbred with the Oriental imports to produce this fantastic breed of horse called the Thoroughbred. And uh, Daniel Defoe noted this in his tour through the island of Britain. Now, Daniel, I, the thing, I, the problem I have with my rage is that I have such um, dodgy uh, witnesses to it because everybody says <laughs> Daniel Defoe. Yeah, but but he said that Yorkshire was the place, and he actually drew comparisons between the Yorkshire horses and the imports, and he said Yorkshire will always beat the barb because it can run in deep, muddy ground, and it can stay for longer, and it can carry more weight, and it's always a winner. So he is, is one of the witnesses as to the importance of the horses in Yorkshire at this time, and the Yorkshire horse breeders. Hmm. So uh, are, we, are we talking even these, even things like the Galloway nag, are they, are they bred for racing, or do they, do they have other uses as well? They're fast riding horses, and here we have to kind of put ourselves into the mindset of how people lived, particularly in the north of England, in Ireland and Scotland in centuries past. In the days before coaches began to be widely used, then, and of course for that you need a good road system, everybody who wanted to get anywhere would have to resort either to sea transport or to a fast horse. Um, if you were the king, you had to get somewhere in a hurry to see, to show yourself to your people. And this is why Scotland's really important because horses were essential to the monarchs covering such a large area of country. They, they needed to sometimes to get people somewhere very fast and very comfortably. So these types of horses, particularly called ambling horses, you'll find those not just in Scotland, but throughout the rest of Britain and Europe as well. They, this is where I often make a comment about value and cost because the nags, the riding nags, which a term which is used very widely by people as important as William Cavendish, Duke of Newcastle, talks about nags. And they, they may not cost very much, but they have immense value. If your car breaks down and your only form of transport is a bicycle, then that bicycle suddenly achieves much greater value than the car which hmm. is broken down by hmm. the side of the road nags were like that they were the horses that everybody used every day for transport to get somewhere a to b in a hurry yeah yeah so we've, we've mentioned kings and racing already but um one particular king in english british history is particularly noted with horse racing isn't he um charles ii the merry monarch what can you tell us about his relationship with horses and horse racing this is a very interesting thing because it should actually be, funnily enough, uh, probably Henry VIII who gets the, the reference as the king's mm. um, interest in horse racing. And he, of course, yes, Joseph IV is his great rival and dies at the field of Flodden, this very horsey king, Joseph yes. IV of Scotland. And at the, at the same time, Henry's in correspondence with the Gonzaga family of Mantua who are breeding racehorses for the Palio. And he's asking them for some of the racehorses because he says, the best horses I have are the Cavalli Corridori di Scotia, says his representative, the running horses of Scotland, which are most likely Galloway's. So I don't really think of Henry VIII as being a, a horse racing king, but 
he was just the same as James the Fourth were. I think it was probably a big part of their rivalry, the rivalry over horses. But Charles has got this reputation as being somehow involved in the foundation of the thoroughbred. And indeed, in some quarters, he's credited with importing horses, especially for racing, which he didn't do. This is another piece of the mythology. That didn't actually happen. Happen. He, he was given one horse from um, his consul in uh, Constantinople, but he wasn't really in the actively involved in importing horses at all. This one horse, mm. which was an Arab, was so unique and so unusual that everybody came out to look at it in St. James's Park. And wow, never seen one of those before. That's pretty amazing. But the, the Arabs, although they had qualities that people liked and admired, they did not have the speed gene that is in the Galloway. And we presume the hobby, although the hobby is extinct. And also everybody laughs at this point because they're closely related to that Galloway. The Shetland pony. As the sea, yes, <laughs> but the so-called. Sorry, sorry, just just I'm, let's step back a bit there. The, the Shetland. I'm going to laugh as you since you instructed. But the <laughs> Shetland pony has the speed gene. It does. They're pretty nippy. Oh yes, the Shetland pony. Yes, yes, yes. They they secretly rule the world. You know, they they really do. The Shetland ponies. Uh, there's a, a lot of the documentation in Scotland talks about a relationship between the Shetlands and the Galloways. In early times, the Shetlands, the Galloways were a bigger version, rather like Icelandic horses. You perhaps won't be familiar with them, not being horsey people, but certainly other people are familiar with Icelandic Mm. horses, which have the same kind of gaits as the Galloway did, are very, very fast and strong and enduring for their size. So in this mindset of what do people want in late medieval, early modern times before everybody started riding around in coaches, they want fast, reliable, economic horses. They don't have to be mm. big. They're not big horses, but they, those are the things they're looking for. I need to get to A, from A to B in a hurry. And they're very popular because um, young men like riding them because they're fast and, and dangerous. And what turns up in Thomas Decker's book on... Um, the the goals horn book about young men who will ride around london to the various <clears throat> sites they want to see mm. and uh you know being polite pubs <laughs> and <laughs> places and eateries and other places of entertainment and a galloway nag is the kind of horse that will get you there so you kind of think of it they, these are these are ton of boys riding their horses around galloways have a good reputation um, we were on Charles II, I think, weren't we? Charles, mm. no, definitely mm. not. He's He's got an unwarranted reputation for... He did race, he did race, and he did support giving plates and cups and so forth, but um, not not for really making a substantial contribution to the thoroughbred. Yeah, mm. William III, yes. Arabs start to be in, but imported in great number during the reign of William III. So we've got... You mentioned there Henry VIII is kind of to an extent, the birth of horse racing in Britain, potentially as we know it now. Um, I think it wasn't Chester Racecourse part of his, yes. part of his reign? Uh, it which was is in the his reign, old... yes. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a, that is a very early racing venue in, in England. I'd say Henry is, we can you know credit Henry with he- racing in England, certainly, but I'd say the Scots were ahead of him. Uh, certainly... You know, that racing was a well-established sport for the court in Scotland mm. during Henry's reign and probably before it. But 
my research suggests that Henry wanted this action. He's, he's, um, you know, he's involved with the Gonzagas who are known for the Palio horses. And uh, I'm certain he knows that James the Fourth of Scotland has very good horses as well. So yeah, we can give him some credit for encouraging, for, for racing happening in his reign. Although as to how much he personally encouraged it, I think is a little bit more difficult to tell, mm. but principally because we get a load of other stuff about Henry, you know, everybody thinks of yeah. his tyrannical behavior. It's just like, yeah. yeah, well, did you know he was interested in horse racing? Yeah. <laughs> That one goes under the radar. Would would he have been more interested in horses for the joust rather than for the base? He he yes, I mean famously he did joust, but it's pretty clear from his communications with the Gonzaga that that he family that he was Mm. interested in the race horses and he was desperate to get his hands on some of their well known horses and indeed did. There's interesting correspondence where the Gonzaga family are kind of going. Well, you know, and he sends them some horses called Hackneys and Hobbies and Equigradarii or Equosgradarius, which I think are probably is probably a term for the Galloway, since we we come across that term in Scotland with reference to Galloway horses. And if, as we know through the correspondence, that those were the fastest horses he had, he's also sending them. But the negotiations are really good because no, the Gonzaga and, and family and Henry. Nobody wants to really give anything away if they can possibly help it. Eventually, he does get some broodmares from the Gonzaga family. He's sending hobbies and hackneys, which they're very, very pleased about. But it's all very high-level negotiation. you know. So we can give him with credit for a lot more than he's usually credited with in, the whole, in terms of horse, uh, of interest in horses, yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And thinking, bearing in mind, if we go back to even Roman times and we have we, we have the term hippodrome, you know, which is there to feature all the horses, you know, we are a prior Roman colony. Although we credit Henry with, like, bringing horse racing to be a, a bigger thing, but how much horse racing do we have kind of in earlier history? In Britain? Um, this is a very interesting area, actually, because... There's, it's another area where there's a lot of mythology. And I was able to debunk one of major piece of mythology about Septimius Severus introducing Arab horses into Britain. It was a completely made up tale by a so-called turf historian called J.P. Hall in the 19th century. He just made it up. He made up a whole story about Septimius Severus importing horses into Britain 
at Netherby in Yorkshire, and it was just completely made up. So I wrote a paper about this and said, um, I think you'll find, no, he didn't. He just made it up. This was struggling with mythology all the time. That was yes. get really rutty. Uh, this mythology that Paul is out there. Um, and I, I sort of, uh, I feel like I'm going along behind with a, a sweeping brush, you know, sweeping this up, going, no, 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 not that, not that. <laughs> Look over here. It's incorrect. <laughs> just let's not hmm. do this any longer. So yes, there's a lot of mythology out there and people, the reason for that is people love it. People love mythology. And in some ways, when I wrote my Septimius Severus paper, I was like, I'm really sorry that I have to actually bust this one because it's been so popular. But, uh, you know, we, we must do as historians what we, what we have to do. If we've come across major inaccuracies, then it's our job to point them out, I think. Yes, I know that classic historian phrase there of, I think you'll find the one thing you never <laughs> want coming out of an audience at you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. Um, so evidence for importation of Ara- Arabians is, is pretty small then. And, but the, the Arab horse has been credited with being the main contributor to the thoroughbred breed coming through the late 17th, early 18th century. When did Arabian horses really become popular and become imported in in much greater numbers? The first really credible Arabian in the records uh, occurs in the reign of James VI and I. And that's a fairly credible horse called Mr. Markham's Arabian. So this is about 1620 or thereabouts. That's his Gervais Markham, whom other historians will, will know about. Writer, a hack, basically, who would write about anything and everything. And horses were one of the things that he wrote about. His, mm. one of the Markham family mentions a, a, an Arabian horse and how wonderful it is in the late 16th century. But we really don't, you know, know how much of this is real, whether it's really an Arabian, what he means by it. And another issue that we have is that the terms Turk, Turkoman, Barb, Arabian are often used interchangeably. So people who are Arabian fans, in particular in later centuries, in the 19th century, for instance, will use the term Arab to, when describing another breed, because any good horse, as far as they're concerned, is an Arab. But we're talking about different Mm. cultural backgrounds, different sources. And this is very much under the influence of the the Orientalism of the 19th century and also greatly affected by what our relationship is with various places as to what we call the particular horses. Um, So there's a whole kind of, how can I put this, which magazine history of publishing about horses, which breeds are good, which breeds are novel, which breeds are the horse that you should now have to replace that horse that you used to have. It's just like cars, basically. Uh, we can follow this trajectory of different types of cars, different types of horse being popular, unpopular. And, of course, you've also got to take into account that dealers um, will sell what's popular and they'll put a story on it. So it's quite complicated. So Arabs in greater numbers, where we've got good documentation for them being imported, from the time of William III, because he did genuinely send abroad people to look for good horses to bring back to Britain. That's pretty well, that documentation is sound. And that would be from the period of his, the start of his reign, 1688, 
to around about the middle of the 18th century. And suddenly the magic is no longer working with racehorses, no matter how many so-called Arabs or whatever kind of horse you bring in, they're not improving. And that's basically because the Galloways and hobbies that had provided the initial speed in the first place had dropped from view, had ceased to exist in their original form, had been bred into other types of horse. And that's a very noticeable thing that happens in the 18th century. Okay, so you mentioned the Galloway there as a key element in the creation of the thoroughbred um, that you argue. What do they contribute? Speed, mainly. And in the early days of racing, when races were run over several heats, you might run four heats of four miles. So you need to have a horse that's got a lot of stamina, very different from the kind of sprint short races that we see now, flat racing. So it, mm-hmm. it also, it also, there's a strong link to hunting. So a good hunting horse, a good courser is also very often very, a, a good racehorse. It's got speed. It's got stamina. Uh, so this is the main thing that people are looking for in the very early days of racing, not just speed, but speed and stamina mm. and also easy keeping and multi-purpose horses that you can use for lots of different things. Johnny Armstrong, Border Eva, he probably, he used them, uh, if his ballads to be believed, he'd use them not only his fine grey war horses for war, but also for loading up with English gold, because that's actually in the ballad of Johnny <laughs> Armstrong. Saying, I've got these wonderful horses and the sight of a spear, they start whinnying and nickering. But, you know, I'll, this is when he's gar- bargaining with the king, because the king's just about to hang him. And he says, I've got all these wonderful horses, <laughs> and I'll give you all these horses and as much English gold as their broad backs will bear. So what you want is a horse that can do everything. Um, I was going to say the old joke about the, um, the farmer's dog, you know, it's, it's glass and shit's diamonds. <laughs> that one. <laughs> these right. horses are the farmer's ideal dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these horses are like that. <laughs> okay, we're from left field. <laughs> um, I'm just there on the. You mentioned that the horses that'll do anything, and uh, I think it's more a horse question than a history question. Is the thoroughbreds that we've got now racing? Can you use them for anything other than racing? And I, I reason why I ask is I, I suggested that we've got we've got some friends who joust who said like don't go near a thoroughbred horse because they're insane, and you can't use them for anything else other than sticking them on Pontefract Racecourse and getting them to belt the hell out of it. Is that <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, no. The the thoroughbred <laughs> is called the thoroughbred because it's the thorough horse that. Thoroughly bred for racing. So in that sense, yes, they've, that's what they've been bred for. They've been bred to race. Um, there's been arguments going on ever since the thoroughbred, the, the concept of the thoroughbred came along that about the fact that they're being raced too young, that they're worn out. This is still true for a lot of thoroughbred racehorses. They, they have a short life and not, not a very happy one. And they, that this is all, all they're good for is for running they have no they no longer have the stamina that the horses that preceded them have but a lot of people they are sports horses they are used in all kinds of other sports as well but mainly those big equestrian type sports the eventing show jumping horses that participate in those will have very often have some thoroughbred in them 
Uh, not always, because we've got breeds now that have been specially bred, selected to participate in these sports. For jousting, I'd want a very sensible horse. Mm, I'd want a horse that wasn't going to be phased by anything, really. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were not necessarily, I think there's a concept that for among a lot of people, this is another kind of piece of horsey mythology, that the knights rode massive horses like Clydesdales and Shires. Well, they certainly didn't. They were more hmm. like what we call a hunter type of horse, around about 15 hands, strong and sturdy for sure, but also um, very agile and capable of, um, uh, and very it, it, tractable, good, well trained, really, basically easy to train. Yeah. So I think yeah, they're very good. I was riding into battle on the first. <laughs> If I was riding into battle, I think the first thing that I'd want from my horse is that I could control it. Yes. Yeah. Because battlefields definitely. are a scary environment and horses well known for turning up their nose at just like the wrong type of road. Hmm. I, I very much want one that I can, if I go out into that, it's going to, or if I, more importantly, if I go run like hell away from that, it's going to as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to get out of there. And this is when you need your Galloway nag. You see, this is it. It's just like little speedy horse, get out of there. Hop on your yes. slightly larger version of the Shetland and get out of it. Yeah. So, what now that we're in the modern age and we know a lot more about, um, say, the DNA sequences of different animals, different breeds of horses, what does that tell us about the thoroughbred? What contributed to the, to the DNA side of the thoroughbred? Well, this is where things have become really fascinating in the past 10, mm. 15 years. I think it was uh, 2010 that a team of researchers came to the conclusion that speed in the thoroughbred had come from possibly a single Galloway mare. There's a whole kind of back history as to why it should be mares rather than stallions that they were bred to. But principally, of mares don't tend to get moved around as much as stallions do when the English, in particular, went overseas to buy stallions. They'd buy horses. They were they were looking for stallions to bring them to bring back. So, plenty of people understood the logic that the although the myth has prevailed about the 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 Arab horses, the Oriental horses, plenty of people did understand that what was being they were being bred to basically were the best racing mares in Britain and particularly in the north of England. This is what the team say the DNA reveals, that a single Galloway mare contributed the speed gene to the thoroughbred. The other major contributor was not the Arab horse, but the Turk or Turkoman horse, and that also contributed speed and probably slight bigger size, but um, longer legs possibly as well. So if you add longer legs to speed, obviously you get a faster horse. Speed is about... Of we would think that a big horse with long legs is going to be faster. Well, it is generally, but it's also about things like size of the heart, the way the blood pumps, the efficiency of the lungs, whether the the action of the shoulders and the joints and the reach of the horse. And a lot of thoroughbreds, if you watch thoroughbreds on the racetrack, they have a very long reach. This may have come from the the Galloway and Hobby ancestors as much as it may have come from the the so-called Oriental horses. But I think that's really the, the point that's very important is that the thoroughbred, we talk about purebred thoroughbreds, and it is a close gene pool now, but it was originally created like the rest of us from horses. Well, not 
obviously we're not creative reporters, but from various, <laughs> you yourself, young lady. various yeah. places. Oh, yes, what did you say about stallions right at the start there? Yeah, we, we, we do have the same. The third there are several the centaur listeners on the podcast. Oh, that's super. This is especially for them, then. That's, this yes. is for them. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, it's, a, it's a project, really, of horses from different places, different contributions. The sad thing for me is that we know the names of these three stallions that made a contribution, but we don't know the names of many of the horses before that who also made a contribution. And we certainly don't know the name of the Galloway mare who, mm. if these researchers are right, gave her genes to what you might call the British Thoroughbred Project. We don't know her name. We don't know who it was. And this thing is very sad and reflective of uh, the fact that the mares were simply seen as vessels for the the male horses. They weren't seen as being capable of contributing anything themselves. Well, mitochondrial DNA research proves that definitely not to be the case because I was very happy because my research, which is largely in literature and documentation, supports this completely. I, the, what I've looked at uh, would agree with this, basically. Pure, yeah, pure. Yeah. If you pure in the sense of pure magic, or pure—that's pure, wonderful, or whatever—but pure in the sense of pure blood. What does that really mean? It's made from genes from different places. It's—it's it's the purity doesn't really quite enter into it. So now that, as you can say, we can start to genetically track kind of this sort of thing. Are are we are we starting to see this? myth breakdown and i mean what do we, are there any kind of real world implications of this myth or misconception that, that we can see today for me this is partly political why does you can use the whole thoroughbred mythos as something to explore history and say why do some things get remembered why do some things get forgotten why do some things why are some things mythologized while others are set on one side and there was a big issue in the 20th century about quote common horses that may have somehow worked their way into the thoroughbred in the early days but we've bred them all out now now this is just a nonsense basically so it's, it's a you can view it as a highly important social political economic uh history in its own right why do we emphasize some things but not others in that sense it is very important and it's also very important in that the galloway in particular became a highly it was it was used as a satirical tool by the english for everything that they found kind of, they recognized it as a very good horse but they also found it a good way of shorthand for describing things that they found problematically scottish like the Covenanters. So <laughs> the Galloway becomes attached to these, the, in these satirical context, you know, people, this myth of purity, this myth of the sort of the English gentleman and his pure and wonderful thoroughbred horse. But underlying that is a lot more complicated material that doesn't get looked at. And this is true of all areas of history. Why do we remember some things but not others? I hesitate to call this a lost history because history doesn't really get lost, gets suppressed or sat on or discarded or sneered at or dumped. But 
So to my mind, for me, it's a good example of a kind of history that gets set on one side and that needs to be re-examined. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Miriam, because that's uh, that was that's opened a stable door for me. It really has. <laughs> I told you at the start I was going to learn something, and uh, I, and I absolutely have. So so thank you very much for getting that off your chest. Do you feel better? I do actually. This is my big public expose, really, <laughs> of my research. The research I've been doing all my life, really, but certainly in the years of the PhD, and it began because. In Tyneside, where I come from, we still, as in Daniel Defoe's day, call all good horses gallowers. That's what we call them. The miners call their horses gallowers. The upland farmers call their horses gallowers. This is how important the galloways to be, be. So what started for me as just a simple childhood question of why do we call them gallowers? Years later, I know why we call them gallowers, and I also know how and why they've been set on one side and forgotten about. And so this has been a fabulous opportunity for me. Thank you so much to test my research in public to a public audience. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to get it off my chest. And I thoroughly yeah. expect to get some flack from this. And I hope I do, really. <laughs> because, yes. Honestly, if you can deliver the same flack that the Spitfire episode did, you're on to a win, right? That was... <laughs> um, well, yeah, let's let's bring back the Galloway. Let's let's start that campaign right here. We we will do a sideline in horse rage. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And if you would like to know more, then you can start by uh, connecting uh, with Miriam. You can read her excellent blog at historyonhorseback.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Bibi Miriam. And we will have links to both of those in the show notes. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed that. We've certainly enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Miriam. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join our own angry mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.